Detroit has five marinas that are predominantly African-American and they're all luxury boats and they're third and fourth generation boat owners, which I want hundreds and hundreds of boat owners. And you're talking about women that are boat club owners and boat club and in boat clubs. I have never heard of luxury boats, marinas or clubs in Detroit. And I grew up in Ann Arbor, which is only like 45 minutes from here. And turns out they've been here for a hundred years. And so we, we just, you know, I already, all thing I ever heard of was dystopia, you know, terrible things and pollution. And it's not true. The entrepreneurship, the uh, free market, the patriotism of the, the people here, unbelievable, off the charts. And the resiliency is unbelievable. This is the Ingles of Latitude podcast, session number 177 with Commander Dale Brown. What you're about to hear is the integration of life. Clarity is power. If you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. Liberty. We choose to go to the moon. It's happening. And all things geek. Yeah, I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Uh, you got a badass over here. Welcome to the Angles of Latitude podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. This is JC Preston alongside Ron Gakiran, host of the Stories of COVID podcast. If this is the first time you're listening in, this is the show where we bring you life lessons or a message from successful entrepreneurs, experts, athletes, and artists so that you too can find it, execute your own personal mission, and live a lifestyle that you're proud of. So in the last couple of, of episodes, we've been making it a point to bring you some inspiring people to, to help you through your own pandemic pivot in your business. However, as you might know, something else that has popped up in the last month are protests about race equality and and holding law enforcement accountable for actions taken out on the field. And while this isn't a topic that I can speak directly to, uh, I wanted to have someone on on the show who's created a business and, and around protection and keeping the peace. Today, Veronica and I are speaking with Commander Dale Brown from the Threat Management Center in Detroit, Michigan. And his unique perspective between law enforcement and the people he works with on the streets of Detroit have helped lower the crime rates there quite significantly. And I have to admit, over the last year or so that I've gotten to know Dale, he's really helped me get my head around the full story of the current civic unrest climate. And it's not the narrative that we've, we're all used to hearing from the media. So in our conversation with Dale today, we'll be talking about how he first got into teaching personal protection in the first place, the ups and downs he's seen in his 25 years of experience, and what are some of the steps society needs to take to erase race. But first, I want to remind you guys of the resource Uncover Your Personal Mission. And as you'll hear in today's conversation with Dale, there might be a point in your life where you feel like you're the only one who's meant to do the work that others don't want to do. And for him, it literally was a point where he felt that he could make a difference. And so he started on his path. And this path has led him to being known as one of the forerunners on the topic of crime prevention around the world. So is there a calling in your life? Maybe there's something you feel you could help with that no one else seems to care about or is qualified for. Perhaps you're starting to get a hint of what your, your purpose is. If so, you can verify it with the exercises we do and uncover your personal mission. While it might not be as timely or unique as, as Dale's calling, 
we all have something we're specifically good at. So let's find out what that niche of yours is and get you on the right track to make it a realization. You can grab the guide at newinceptions.com slash personal mission guide. That's newinceptions.com slash personal mission guide. All right. Remember to subscribe to the show on whichever platform you're listening in on. Uh, Also get into the conversation with a comment or a review. Not only do they help affect the chance that other people find the show, but it's it's a great way for you to actually get involved yourself. And in fact, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I'll be sure to read it in an upcoming session. If you need help in scaling your business, you guys can always email us at heyguysatnewinceptions.com with any questions you have. Always love to help other listeners in any way that we can. And show notes and show note extras of the show can be found at newinceptions.com slash 177. That said, as always, I'll be on at the end of the show to fill you in on anything we might have missed. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I'm JC Preston alongside Veronica Kieran, host of the Stories of COVID podcast. Veronica, how are you doing today? Good. Fantastic. So today's going to be an interesting and, and timely discussion, I think. Not only are we living in a, in a time of a, of a pandemic, but right in the middle of it, the world is also sharing a bit of civil turmoil. And instead of burying our heads in the sand and going on with our regularly scheduled queue of interviews with amazing people, I actually wanted to get someone on on the show who's who's pretty much an expert at what's going on in the world today. And in this session, we're speaking with Dale Brown of Detroit's Threat Management Center. Among the things they do for the community, one thing that stands out to me is that they train citizens and police alike to mitigate potentially violent crimes. And in fact, a lot of this they do through psychological tactics training. His work is something that I think a lot of communities across the country and around the world could benefit from in today's high-tension environment. On a side note, interestingly, uh, Harrison and I had an interview with Dale about a year or so ago when I first uh, learned of him after hearing him on Andrew Heaton's podcast a couple of times as well as him being featured in a documentary called Abandoned, which is a a Vice documentary series about abandoned locations around the country, uh, including in in this particular episode, Parts of Detroit. And this this was all within a week. So it was basically the universe telling me that I had to get a hold of Dale at the time. So, uh, you know, based on these topics, I was really interested to have him on the show then. And unfortunately, the final recording of that interview didn't turn out that great audio wise. So I didn't publish it. So it's definitely nice to have him back on for a take two. Welcome back to the show, Dale. How are you doing? Thank you. Great to be back. Appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Um, so Dale, just to give you a little background about myself, uh, JC kind of strategically asked me to be on this episode, uh, because I grew up just outside Detroit as well. Um, and so, you know, I remember growing up during the days of Kwame Kilpatrick and the city being bailed out and the turning off of utilities, the burning of abandoned houses. Um, that was all reality for me. Um, now, today, the city is in its early days of renaissance, and uh, I'm delighted to see that because I think the Art Deco buildings downtown are gorgeous, and I really love seeing them being preserved. Uh, those who are moving there today are just definitely experiencing a very different world from that of the 90s and early aughts. Um, so the need was there, of course, for defense and support, but you had the motivation and background that others did not. 
Uh, so what drew you back to Detroit's east side to teach others to defend themselves and their businesses in those early 90s? Uh, well, you know, what got me started was the reality that, um, you know, in my opinion, people should not be living in terror and they should not be chased off bridges. And mm-hmm. I heard a story about a girl who was chased off a bridge in front of a, a young lady, chased off a bridge in front of a crowd of people. And uh, she died jumping off the Belle Isle Bridge. The Belle Isle Bridge is mm-hmm. uh, linking the largest island to the uh, to the um, to Detroit, and it's the largest island connected to any city in the United States. And I thought it was odd. In fact, I, I found it uh, totally untrue. And my opinion was that there's no way a crowd would cheer as a woman was chased off a bridge in broad daylight in front of a crowd of people and would jump to her death off of this bridge. And I thought, if I took my training to Detroit and I taught people how to protect themselves, and I taught them how to protect others, someone on that bridge could have disarmed this University of Michigan football player uh, of his crowbar and stopped him from chasing this young mother off the bridge. This kid went to a a private school. He had a two-parent household, went to Christian church, and was... um, uh, a good student and was going to University of Michigan on a full ride football scholarship. Mm. And he was going to go and uh, did not go. He's in prison and rightfully so. And this individual uh, spoiled with a brand new Mustang thought it was his prerogative to chase off a woman off a bridge. My point was that should not happen. So I started teaching people in defense, self-defense. I want something I called urban survival tactics I created an actual survival system that incorporates the use of psychology, the understanding of law, and the actual physical skills to keep you alive and safe. Gun disarms, knife disarms, um, actual tactics, taking people down, taking them under control without killing them. Very important is that I really emphasized, I always emphasized how not to kill people. And that seems very uh, poignant for today, as, as you know, people are saying they're accidentally killing people. Uh, by positional asphyxiation, asphyxiation, which is a common thing that happens not just in police, it happens in any environment where people are untrained. So um, people that work with young adults in uh, rehab centers, people that work with drug addicts, people that work with kids in schools, kids are being um, you know, accidentally killed through positional asphyxiation because they don't know what they're doing. Security guards do it every day, killing people. They don't have training, so what happens is they try to hold someone and people die. So that's why I created this training system, was so regular people could defend themselves and so that police and people in protective services could do so, uh, could protect people and property without killing people unnecessarily. Amazing and so important. Uh, Yeah, defense does not have to involve the death of another person, uh, especially especially if, uh, if we want the opportunity for justice, true justice. So one of our guests some time ago, Jordan Harbinger, also grew up in the Detroit area. And during our chat, he said there wasn't really much there for young people to do. Um, of course, that that was very true um, back in the early aughts. Today, it's starting to evolve a little bit. But so when he was growing up, he said um, his mom recommended he do traveling in order to get out. And um, that's, that's how he thrived in life. So when it seems like so many people were leaving the city 
especially during the recession. Why did you stick around and continue to develop the Detroit Threat Management Center? Well, uh, first and foremost, that's a great question. First of all, I didn't um, think of a business. I wasn't coming here to make money. I went to help people. And mm-hmm. I, went to, I wanted to protect people by having them protect themselves. I know I can't protect everyone. So I wanted to make people able to protect themselves. You know, I grew up in Ann Arbor. And Ann Arbor, I never thought about my safety. I never thought I could die or be killed. I really thought that, you know, basically you'll be alive and you're fine and the police will help you. Where I grew up, the police were very positive. Police were very helpful. You simply, I, I really didn't even see the police very much. And when I did see them, they were very professional. So mm-hmm. I did not, I really thought that any problems Detroit was having was some kind of disconnect between the people and their ability to communicate with the police. So I made it my personal, uh, you know, mission to make it so people could make themselves safe and learn how to communicate with police properly so they wouldn't have problems. And it was once I put boots on the ground and actually got out there helping people that I realized the situation was much different than I thought it was. And then once I studied the history of Detroit, I really started to learn that what I thought was wrong. So, you know, in order for us to really make um, really good decisions, we have to understand how things got the way they are. And in order for us to make things better, we have to learn from our mistakes. But imagine if we don't know we had mistakes or what those mistakes were, how could we make really good pertinent decisions uh, or appropriate decisions if we've never actually faced what the problems were in the first place? And that's what you're looking at when you look at Detroit. And I was completely off base. I was completely shocked when I learned the truth. And it's so different than the world I grew up with in in Ann Arbor. It's totally different. And I had to accept that reality in order to be effective at helping the families. And, um, you know, again, by helping the families, which is surviving, it turns out that uh, when you have people that are not raped, robbed, and killed in homes and businesses, when you have people that are not allowed to perish, that are in their homes, it turns out the rich people that own property become wealthier. So essentially, my actions helping people make rich people richer, and then I charge rich people money in exchange. And they like paying me because they like wealth. So everyone's a winner. The police department wins because they got more taxpayers alive. They have less crime, less violence. The wealthy people are extremely happy because they have more wealth. And of course, the regular people, the working class people and poor people are alive, so they're very happy as well. So the last time we did this interview, you were you were actually out on patrol, even though, again, you're not law enforcement. Um, similarly, you have you have call names, you have high tech equipment and your group. isn't really it's not security for hire, as we've been talking about. So for those of us who can't who aren't necessarily up to speed. What is the Detroit Management Center now? Because I know that there's 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 more than what you do at an outreach as opposed to just training people how to do self-defense now. Self-defense now. So first and foremost, we're a school and the training is what allows us to, to help police officers protect themselves and the public by teaching them tactics that help them survive and take people into custody safely and to uh, literally be able to uh, anticipate threats and be ahead of those decision-making of human threat conditions and uh, solve problems without injuring and killing people and keeping themselves alive simultaneously. We also do this mostly for civilians. So 80% of the people we train are civilians. And we teach regular men, women, and children, not ninjas, not fighters. 
We teach them how to keep themselves, their families, their communities safe, and their corporations safe. And now after 25 years, we started in 1994, um, 95, I was uh, uh, in a situation where, you know, I had to realize that no matter how many times that I call someone who's not here, they're not going to be here in time to help the people. So I had to take it upon myself to physically help people survive on the east side of Detroit. And in order to get the legal right to do that, I had to be hired as security. Mm. And that's also how I was able to fund a full-time commitment to protect mm-hmm. the families. Mm-hmm. So I went to the wealthy business owners and said, listen, we can you know, help the families. We can help them survive. The wealthy people that own the building said, no, thank you. I said, wait a minute. Uh, wait, what if I could make you wealthier by stopping the massive move outs when there's murders in your community? And they thought, well, I don't think you can do that because the Detroit police can't do it. How could some guy with some school stop the, the, the killings, the murders, the shootings, uh, if the Detroit police department couldn't stop it? Mm. How could, uh, how could they, how could they do that? I mean, how could, what makes you think you can do that? I said, well, you know what? I don't know, but I'm going to try. Give me six months give me a free school, give me one free apartment in each building. I'll get volunteers from the community. I'll train them and we'll protect your buildings and see what happens in six months. I believe we can stop all the killings and stop the move outs. And the, the wealthy business owner that owned a 17 story building, another 10 story building um, and several other buildings in the area, he agreed. And after that, uh, within six months, I stopped all the home invasions and murders and I uh, did it without killing anyone. I did without arresting most people. Uh, we had a few situations where people had to be held, but in most situations, we were able to stop the violence without violence. And as a result, the property owners uh, did not have uh, the home invasions, so they didn't have people moving out after murders and crimes. So everybody became more lucrative. Uh, the business owners in the area got more customers, and the owners of the buildings became wealthier. So ultimately, the police also got all the credit for having the 911 calls drop in the area. And you think like, I don't know where people get this competition concept. There's no competition. We don't even count. There's no data for us. We don't exist. So all, all, the, all that's known in Comstat and, and police statistical data is that somehow there were 300 calls for 911 and murders and shootings. And then all of a sudden, there's none. And so the police commander in that area became our secret su- supporter. And because I talk like people where I'm from, Ann Arbor, Michigan, the police thought I was a federal agent. And uh, <laughs> they couldn't, they did not believe I was actually poor. I was like, yeah, I'm from Ann Arbor. I'm, uh, I uh, didn't go to the college, so my parents wouldn't give me any money. So I went to the <laughs> Army, and I'm here poor, helping the families. They were like, yeah, right. You're some kind of <laughs> you know. I mean, they really thought I was a federal agent. you know. And now people look up, and they, we have boats and and we have um, armored vehicles and we have high-end expensive vehicles and, you know, our equipment is top of the line. We have cellular cameras in our vehicles. All this top of the line equipment, all this material, all these material things are just derivatives of creating successful outcomes successfully, non-violently, no lawsuits. Um, and that's what creates the prosperity. It's, it's, in other words, there's a direct correlation between peace and prosperity. And that's what I've been able to prove for 25 mm. years. And I, mm. my plan is to take this across our country and around the world. Wow. So I want to talk about today's, uh, you know, up, uprising protests. And you know, we're talking about how police are sometimes not trained well enough to be able to avoid 
the deaths of those that they're in pursuit of. Um, and you know, there's, there's just, there's real tragedies that happen across the board. Um, some of the statues, uh, across the country are being taken down, including Detroit's former mayor Hubbard. And so we're seeing, you know, protests happen in Detroit just as much as the rest of the country, but in Detroit, they're very peaceful protests and they're quite supported. Um, how do you see Detroit's current renaissance playing a role in that movement? Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, the current renaissance is really just the recognition of the people that are um, outside the internal bubble of the people that have succeeded in Detroit for many years. My family is the first family that opened the first privately owned African-American hospital. My great-grandmother was the first pri uh, uh, African-American female licensed doctor in the state of Michigan. And my great-grandfather was also a doctor, so they, had, they, were, um, they operated the first privately owned hospital. There was a, a government-operated one. Back then, you know, integration had not taken place, so African-Americans mm -hmm. could only go to restricted uh, medical facilities. Um, and uh, then my, great -grand my grandfather uh, uh, was a doctor, and he was also a veteran, served in the uh, World War II as a doctor. And my mother was a doctor in the army, and she, um, and that's how I ended up living in Germany. And um, my little sister actually went to Iraq, and she's a medical, she's a doctor, and she has served in Iraq actually, um, helping uh, families um, and people over there. And uh, she's currently a physician in LA. So I come from a family of, of medical professionals. However, in Detroit, um, what you'll hear about is dystopia. What you won't hear about is the success of the families that grew up here in the Detroit area um, and had always been here. What you're gonna hear about is the Renaissance, but in reality, the families were always here, always successful. And again, that would be a great story and podcast as well, is to talk about real Detroit. It's really a Detroit of great American success. Uh, however, that success, uh, and, and it's a story of the NRA um, and, and Second Amendment rights, however, um, it is, uh, you know, not your typical story. And so therefore it falls on deaf ears often, but we need to celebrate what it means to be free and freedom and the freedom to uh, compete. And in, in that we need to understand the struggle of the people that struggled against a lack of competition uh, and the inability to be able to compete and how they succeeded. Detroit's that, a story of that. An yeah. example of that is Detroit has five marinas that are predominantly African-American and they're all luxury boats and they're third and fourth generation boat owners, which I want hundreds and hundreds of boat owners. Uh, and you're talking about women that are boat club owners and boat club and in boat clubs. I have never heard of uh, any boat, uh, luxury boats, uh, uh, marinas or clubs in Detroit. And I grew up in Ann Arbor, which is only like 45 minutes from here. Um, and turns out they've been here for a hundred years. And so we, we just, you know, I already, all they ever heard of was dystopia, you know, terrible things and crime right. and pollution. And it's not true. The entrepreneurship, the, uh, free market, the, the patriotism of the, the people here, unbelievable off the charts. And the resiliency is unbelievable. The, the entrepreneurship is exactly how they survive. We're talking about a million people and under the radar. And uh, <laughs> without putting all their money into accounts that can be tracked, they were able to successfully do business uh, and function 
until um, different types of mafias got involved. And these mafias were always here uh, yeah. fighting. So, you know, we're, we live, we're living in a, a society where we restrict information uh, in a way that, that fits certain narratives. And once we tell the truth, it's actually a great story, but it's a story of resilience and a story of, of, of inner strength and, and um, inner fortitude. But it does not fit anything you think about Detroit, for example, or any other urban area. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what I can do is I can, I can break it down for you. If you bring up a subject, I can explain to you how um, major media and how we as a society have been uh, twisted to believe something that's completely false. And ev- let, let me explain this to you. Everything that we think of is basically false. So all those narratives about Renaissance and about, um, you know, it was uh, downtrodden or the fires. How about this? Ready? The fires? You heard about mm-hmm. the fires? Remember the fires? Kwame Kilpatrick got rid of the fires. You know how he did it? He made all the city workers go back to go to work mandatorily as patrol agents uh, with yellow lights in their cars and thousands of people came and they volunteered as well. So how would that stop arsons? Where's the benefit? So remember that remember the, you know this from watching television or if you've been involved in investigations in any type of investigative training, you always follow the money, okay? So what people will do is try to use subterfuge and they'll say something about something else, but really it's about money. So where's the money in these fires? Well, all you got to do is go find out who insured the homes, mm-hmm. who insured the businesses. Mm-hmm. And now you know who burnt them down. Mm-hmm. Now, how come they couldn't arrest anyone? How, that's strange. So you mean to tell me you can find Osama bin Laden in another country, but you can't find Ray Ray Putin Earl <laughs> and the incendiary gasoline they used? Come on, every gas station has video. So if they were buying gasoline in a can to burn down buildings they, or homes and apartments, hundreds of them, there'd be a lot of videos of people getting gasoline, right? Mm. And no one's going to let you take the gas out of their own car. You're not going to take gas from your own car and go burn up something like, oh, I was going to buy some um, some recreational something, maybe some medicine, but instead of buying recreational medicine, I shall buy some fuel to burn something. <laughs> what? That doesn't make sense. Like, why would you do that? I remember when I first moved to Detroit, I was like, so these kids have, let's say, $5 in gas, $5, and they're going to buy some gas, and they're not going to buy medicine with it to smoke. They're going to buy an incendiary. But where's the benefit in buying something that you can't use to meet girls or enjoy right. your night? Right. Mm-hmm. You're not going to buy liquor. You're not going to buy, you're buying an incendiary something to go burn down a house. Mm. That doesn't make any sense. I, from a lot, from a human standpoint, I didn't understand why they would do that. And then I found out from a firefighter that uh, whoever's burning down the homes and buildings would have been getting a $10,000 kickback and uh, they would have to know a lot about arson so that it, it would not lead back to anyone. Mm-hmm. That's what the firefighters told Interesting. Me. Interesting. Because I thought it was just the business owners, okay? Then I found out that business owners actually know people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they actually, you know, because there's people that work in buildings, and then there's people that are owners of stores, and people that live and work in a community may actually go to the store. The store owner may, in fact, have a conversation and have an insurance policy that will allow them to buy a beautiful home in the suburbs uh, once uh, somehow a mysterious fire happens at their store. Mm. Mm. Now, what they would do is hire me and my company at $50 an hour, sometimes with two men, 100 bucks an hour to sit outside the store for days protecting the goods that are still inside while the insurance company is, of course, putting the bill. This went on for years until Kwame Kilpatrick killed that whole thing with his policy of make all the city workers go drive around. And it literally killed the fires. Hmm. So 
All I can tell you is the facts, and then you can put them together the way you want to, but here's what we know for sure. There's not less gasoline in Detroit, and there's not less kids in Detroit. There's not new activities for them to do, yet there's no fires. Hmm. Also, one more thing, there was a thing here called Young Boys Incorporated. It was a big gang. Um, they were making like $10 million a week or something. Yeah, so there was also 7,000 police officers in Detroit. Now there's 2,000 police officers, and there's no giant drug gang. There's no YBI. There's no $10 million a week enterprise of drugs. It just doesn't exist. So how, did, how is it that we can have less drug dealing, less drug empire, when we have less police officers? A lot less police officers. I'm not sure. I'm just saying what I know for a fact. There is no gigantic drug great gang here now, and there was then, and there was Mm -hmm. at least 7,000 police officers in the 80s, and now there's 2,000. So things are much nicer now than ever before, and they're getting more peaceful every day, everywhere in this United States. And the only reason, the only people that don't think it's more peaceful now are people that did not study our country before. Mm -hmm. It's getting better. People are getting along better. There's le- look, look, at the, look at the people that are protesting. They're multi-ethnic, multicultural people. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a change. That other people are um, concerned about other people enough to you know, go with them and, and protest something. Uh, I, did, I went to a protest in Ann Arbor, and they threw rocks at the KKK, and I vowed I would never go to another protest because I didn't go there to go throw rocks at some uh, uh, ethnic... Um, terroristic lady in an organization who's raising children to be ethno-terrorists. And now, now they have reason to, now that someone hit her in the head with a rock. And who hit her with the head with a rock? Right. Well, 90, 90% of the crowd was European Americans, the people I grew up in, in Ann Arbor. They were, so they were running around, like, I guess they, this was before Antifa, but they would be the considered what you, you, what you would consider Antifa. And they were throwing rocks and attacking people. And I was like, okay, uh, the point of the protest is to protest something not to attack the people, <laughs> okay? Right. Now what you just did was you made the KKK lady feel that she needs to continue this thought process. And when her children find out that her, their mom had their head, had her, had her uh, head injured at a protest, they're going to say, yeah, we need to uh, you know, be hateful and, and inappropriate towards other Americans. And uh, that's, that's not the right path. Violence is not the path. Right. And so one of the things that we've actually talked about here in Indy is that race in general is a man-made construct. And I know that, you know, something that, that you know quite a bit about in particular. What, what do you think that are, are some of the steps that we as a society can take to eliminate the idea of race and considering that you were just talking about the fact that the wrong answer is, you know, being hostile? Yes. I mean, first thing we do is study our true history. If you study our true history from Christmas addicts being the first person to help America exist, uh, an African-American who, who had a warrant to get back to a place where he shouldn't have been in the first place, a plantation, threw a rock at people that were doing something inappropriate, and they went back to Britain. Uh, and <laughs> now America exists with 3% of the Americans with no education fighting back against oppression of the people. So this is a great story. It's a great place because the United States, if you think about it, really is Camelot. It really is supposed to be, in my, in my perspective, we're supposed to come together. All the people are supposed to work together. It really is supposed to be this gigantic, you know, melting pot of people. Unfortunately, how we got it, I wish we could have done it in a not, you know, genocidal way. However, we are here and we need to make it as positive as possible, in my, in my opinion. 
mm-hmm. and make it a, um, a place where uh, people are free and have freedom uh, to do positive things and where people that want to do negative things are inhibited from harming others. And I mm-hmm. mean protected. And that's exactly what I bring to the table. And the few is stop being racist. And that means the first thing to do is let go of race. Mm-hmm. If you're an American of European heritage, that's what you are from somewhere in Europe. If you're African, you're African. Your skin color is not your ethnicity. There was never a time in which in Nazi Germany, someone cared about how pale a person was to determine if they're going to shoot them or not or, or kill them in Germany or in Russia or anywhere else. So when Germans went to kill 6 million other Germans that happened to be Jewish, their skin color and, and hair color was not, in, was not important. Uh, and same thing in Russia. They didn't kill 20 million tan Russians. They didn't care what color the Russians were. Um, so the idea that skin color matters never mattered in any society. Right now in Mauritania and Mali, these are empires that don't care about European laws. They're still selling African Muslims right now. You can go to YouTube and find people upset about being sold, about being enslaved right now. And they have YouTube videos out where they filmed it with their phone asking them, why are you enslaving us? And they're saying, well, because you are uh, people we conquered hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and you're supposed to be slaves. It's not because of skin color. And the, the reality is we need to, the first thing we need to do in, in the United States is let go of the skin color concepts, study our history, and then learn from it and then move forward. Because the truth is um, all things are better. Uh, and I, where I'm from, in Ann Arbor, it was always multicultural. So I thought the whole world was that way. And it turns out that um, uh, a lot of people didn't grow up like we did in Ann Arbor. It just wasn't multicultural other places. And uh, the issues that I did experience in Ann Arbor were, were few and far between. Um, but overall, it was, it was culturally cohesive. There were issues, but it was uh, n- nothing severe and significant. Um, and, you know, again, we can do better. And I'm sure it is better now. So the more that we as society come together uh, with different, um, you know, ethnic groups, different cultures, different groups, we can actually learn to respect each other more. And that's the key to, uh, you know, cohesiveness and uh, humanism, you know, focusing on caring about humans doing well and having a good quality of life, which is what drives me. So the, prop, the, the money is a byproduct. It's not a focal point. It's always the byproduct. Because what I do is focus on creating a better thing for other people, a better quality of life for others. So that's what my training system does. It helps you make good decisions so you can make the best decisions to make yourself, your family, and your community safe and with an emphasis on nonviolence. Mm, love it. So as we're working towards a, a better future and, and a new normal when it comes to even the COVID-19 being yesterday's news, apparently... Is there anything you and the Threat Management Center has done specifically as a pivot and how you're, you're now serving the community? Uh, actually, with us, we, don't have to pit, we didn't have to pivot at all. We were, we were considered essential, and we are essential in general, regardless of what other people consider us. But at the same time, in reality, uh, what we did was just simply um, have a chance to have more eye contact with people that would normally be at work and uh, have contact with us. But normally, you know, since they're home, we're actually having a lot more personal contact with people, which is good. And because we like, we enjoy that. So what we do is we literally go around looking at people like family. And so it's nice to meet the families that we're protecting. It's approximately 5,000 families. And my personnel get a chance to talk to them more and meet with them more. And we wear masks. We give out masks to people that don't have them if they need them. 
Um, so that will be a pivot. We actually started carrying masks and gloves to give to people and hand sanitizer. Uh, but uh, in general, you know, for us, uh, we weren't making much physical contact with people. So that wasn't a big deal, but we were always, you know, responsive to people's needs uh, 24 seven. And uh, we believe in rapid response with the idea that we're there to protect the people, not enforce the laws. And that's one thing that's, that's critically different between us and this concept of private policing. We do not privately police people. We are not private police. Although I've been flown around the country around and even in other countries to talk about our success at private policing. And the first thing I explain is I don't privately police anyone. I just went to Acapulco uh, and, uh, and had a workshop and did a, a speaking engagement in Acapulco at the, at Anarchapoco, which was a lot of people that are into freedom and liberty uh, and still thought that somehow uh, you could privately police people in a profitable way, which, you know, we do not do. Uh, we protect people. Police can protect people too, and, and I've, I've seen police protect people. However, the protection is a byproduct of law enforcement. The purpose of police, and it will never change, is to have someone whose job it is, is to enforce laws. Those laws have already been broken nine times out of 10. And what we do is focus on everything that happens before that. Our objective is to not allow laws to be broken, to not create conditions for someone to rape, rob, and kill your family so there is no one to get prosecuted. Mitigation. Um, uh-huh. Right. And, I mean, literally learning how to read body language, how to interact with people, how to not violate their rights, their civil rights and otherwise, and how to not be oppressive while simultaneously making violent criminals believe there's no way they can hunt the families here successfully to uh, cause problems for the business, to do anything that's not in the best interest of, um, of community functionality. And uh, we've been able to do that for 25 years. So no court dates, no deaths. Six of us have been shot, one female, five men. We stabilize our wounded transport to level one trauma hospitals. And uh, no one, um, <clears throat> we've had no court dates because we don't do anything that, that uh, requires court dates so uh (laughs) but most importantly to us what's most important is we made sure that every person that came to us for help was helped and none of them were injured or killed after coming to us for assistance Mm -hmm. so that's what we take most pride in not ourselves and our safety it's the safety of others that matter more than our own and that's one of the things that i have to do is get my staff members i have to find people that believe that the protection of others is more important than their own they have to believe that everyone is a a member of their extended family, no matter what they look like, no matter what their religion is, no matter what their, if they're homed or homeless, um, you know, it doesn't matter what their status is, we treat everyone the same, and you have to look at them as family. And that's the kind of people that can actually protect people, people that actually care about people. So uh, as we're getting close to wrapping up the interview, we like to go into what we call rapid fire questions. And so we'll ask them pretty short and quick, but you can reply. You can give us a full reply. Are you ready, Dale? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, First question is, what are three of your top favorite books that you gift or tell others about? The Art of War. Mm. So I I usually talk about things I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) I I tell people, look at this book for bad reasons. So I don't tell them like the Hockey Cure from Japan, a very important book to study. So you don't do those things. Um, and um, uh, so you know, so in a positive sense, um, 
you know, I refer some some books, and I use a lot of audio books. Uh, Trevor Noah's uh, book, I really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's it. Those three. In the last several years, what's something that you've become good at saying no to, and what realizations have helped you get to that point? Oh, that's good. That's a good question. Um, responding to calls for frivolous reasons, and the reason is because people would use us to harass people if they could. Mm. So mm. we got really good at how we say no. <laughs> um, and, and what we do is we educate people about the no. <laughs> and so that's how we say, no, we're not going to. One guy says, I see these kids come by every day with backpacks at nine o'clock in the morning and you don't see security following them. They don't live in our neighborhood. And you know, it's a wealthy neighborhood, really rich people, right? right this guy owns right. a dealership. And a wealthy guy says, oh, these kids, they come through our neighborhood, this is in Detroit, and they don't live here, and they have backpacks, and they're going at 9 o'clock in the morning down the street. Then I see the same kids with no security following them at 3 o'clock in the afternoon with their backpacks on, walking through our neighborhood. And I say, well, sir, remember when you were a smaller African-American, but you weren't owning a dealership, you were just a kid? Remember that? You remember you were, you were African-American, but you were like, you know, going to school? It's kind of what he, these kids are doing. See, they're going to school. <laughs> African American kids, they do that. They go to school, they have backpacks, and they do it like nine in the morning and three in the afternoon. Just so you know, their parents also live in the neighborhood and they're wealthy. Uh, and so, <laughs> good thing you didn't step up to those kids. <laughs> that would not be good for you, as their parents would probably sue you, as one of them owns a law firm and the one other one's a prosecutor's kid. Yeah. So, um, yeah, good thing you didn't run up on those children, sir. Uh, yeah. So we had to learn how to explain to people, don't chase people in your neighborhood. The guy says to me, uh, and I just learned to tell him, no, we're not just going to show up. Uh, I did have to show up politically for one, because a uh, guy says there's, there's an African-American walking down the street. He's got something, he's wearing all black. He's got something in his hands. Right now, politically, I had to show up because this person is a uh, executive in uh, law enforcement. Mm. So I show up and I, <clears throat> Uh, respectfully, in a very polite way, explain to him that's a judge walking in his own community. He's wearing a black sweatsuit and things in his hands are called weights. And good thing we don't uh, actually um, follow people uh, in a um, <laughs> way to make them feel inappropriate. We greet people. And that's wow. why we don't have any uh, court dates, not because people didn't call and try to get people harassed by us. It is because we have a system that does not allow us to harass people, even if someone paying us wants us to harass people. So getting good at saying no and doing it the right way is how you're able to maintain your contract, maintain a happy client. Uh, by the time you're done talking to them, they're like, please shut up. It's too much talking. And, and thank you for that information. And I think I've learned enough for the rest of my life. I'm never calling you again. <laughs> <laughs> and if you call me again, sir, I will talk more to you again <laughs> into edification of what it means to harass people who shouldn't be getting harassed. And that they stopped calling. I swear they were calling every day. And it was nine out of 10 people calling were African-Americans complaining about African-Americans. They don't know doing stuff like watering their grass, walking down the street, standing in their own lawn. It's, you know, and then you don't see any of that on CNN, which is very disturbing to me. Uh, But I understand why it happens. And it just happens because recency bias and people that make, these bit to make the decisions that CNN and other places are deciding what you're going to see. That is not right. indicative of reality, severity, and significance. Remember, it's an editor, a producer. They don't want to see an African-American reporting an African-American for nothing. That's just not interesting news. 
So you want to show a European American woman complaining, but for every European American woman complaining about African American, I promise you there's 10 African American women doing the same thing. Uh, okay. And for little or nothing or less. Okay. So that's another thing is I'm about edification and by explaining to people, and that's why I do these podcasts, right? I do podcasts literally almost every day with people around the world. So I can explain reality because you know, without boots on the ground, you wouldn't know these things because there is no data. No one has a data called how many African-American women are calling for frivolous reasons or African-American males and, and, and calling the police for nothing. And the police show up there and then do something that gets someone uh, recorded and then it's played on news. There's no data for that. But I can tell you for sure that if you did, if you were being fair and honest, you would see that a lot more African-Americans are calling the police for frivolous reasons. And when they're not calling the police, here's what's worse, they're calling cousins. And you know what cousins do? They don't have due process. <laughs> Cousins go, look, I saw you out in front of my cousin. My, this is a true story from two weeks ago. A uh, man goes to a house and some guys come up to him. And they say, hey, what are you doing? And they go, and he's, a, he's a concealed pistol uh, carrier. He's a, a contractor. And um, he doesn't talk to him. He just ignores him. He's like, I don't know who these, these guys think they are talking to me. Some civilians, right? He's going to his son's house, his son's new house. But he's trying to find the address. So he goes forward, backwards a few times. He finds his son's house, gets out, goes and visits his son comes back out and the two guys are there in a van. They're like, Hey, we want to know what you do in our neighborhood. You know, like neighborhood watch, it's mm-hmm. not police, mm-hmm. right? Not police trained. Yeah. Okay. Here's, here's what happens. So the two guys are like, we want to know what you're doing in our neighborhood. Our families live here. We don't care. You know, we want to know why you're here. You know, he looks kind of dirty. He's a contractor. He's got like dirty clothes on and a ladder on his truck. And you know, in their mind, I don't know if you're thinking he's a criminal, but this guy has a CPL concealed pistol license. Um, he is a martial arts instructor as well. And, um, and a hardworking guy that owns his own company. And so these guys think that they're actually doing the right thing by challenging him in their neighborhood. So they start chasing him and he starts fleeing after he explained to them, Hey, I am visiting my son. I don't have to tell you anything, but he did. He told him, he goes, you know what? I don't have to tell you anything, but I'm going to tell you I'm visiting my son. He just moved the neighborhood and I was, I got the wrong house. So I was looking for the right address. And this is a middle-class, uh, this is a middle-class neighborhood, middle-class or lower middle-class. And um, so people have jobs in this, in this particular community. Uh, and um, everybody, and they're both African-American, the guys that are challenging, that are protecting their neighborhood, and the contractor are both African-Americans. And uh, so as he starts fleeing the community because they're chasing him, they start shooting a gun at him. Great. Now, he could have turned around and shot them dead, but instead he evaded them and got out of there. Now, that kind of stuff happens every day. It happens in uh, Oshkosh, Bagash, Louisiana, and it happens in the inner cities. In the inner cities, what they do is they charge you with a crime on both sides of that. So the guy that I'm telling you about, the contractor, would have turned on and shot those two guys. They would say, oh, my God, senseless violence. Two men were shot in a van. <laughs> and if they would have shot him, they'd say, oh, my gosh, two men shot one man. They wouldn't even tell you that both of them were uh, defending themselves or thought they were. The two men in the van think they're defending their moms or grandmothers, their children from some crazy man who's lurking in their neighborhood, right? And in reality, he was um, just visiting his son's property. It was his son's property too, by the way. His son wasn't actually home. It was his son's property. It's a, a home his, his son just bought. So he's a contractor. He's going to fix it up with his son. So as he was going to the house, they, he th- they thought he was like a, a, fe- a thief of the abandoned home. <laughs> So, wow, 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 yeah, wow. so they would expect you because they're, they're the neighbors, right? They expect you to check, to check with them, bring them your paperwork, right? 
the same thing that police expect, except police will have to wait for you to call them. These guys actually accost you. And what they call this in urban communities and in, in a lot of rural communities, you don't get the whole story because there's only one person alive out there in the country towns to tell you what happened. But um, as you just saw with Aubrey uh, running down the street from a house after he got water. So they, you know, that now they figured out that everybody was going to that house for water because they had the water on, which is why he didn't take anything from there. And there's a saw inside the house. You can actually see it in the video. Um, but uh, they shot him because, you know, in their mind, this is a criminal. And you can, you know, you can say it's racist too, which absolutely it is. But even if it wasn't racist, they still believe that they could accost this person because they believe he's doing crime in an abandoned house. So mm -hmm. what we do is we teach people how they should deal with that situation. And the first way they should deal with it is by calling 911. The second thing they do is don't go to the person and bring violence. And the third thing is, at the end of the day, always remember that lives are more important than laws. Mm-hmm. Name one thing that costs under $100 that has changed your life. Bone-conducive earpiece. Go so it allows, on. It allows you to listen, uh, talk on the phone, listen to music, and keep your ears clear because it's actually vibrating off the bones in front of your ear, uh, not blocking your ear. So you can enjoy your music, be safe, listen up for threats. You know, while you're out, you know, scanning, we, we scan. We don't patrol the community. We scan for threats, deter, That's detect, that. defend. Uh, so mm -hmm. your ears are clear. It looks technologically advanced. It's under $100 and uh, it doesn't block your ears. So yeah, very good technology and very affordable. Cool. cool. Well, today I learned. Yeah, that was that's a nice one. What is something you believed as an 18-year-old and that you, you used to tell yourself, but now you believe is completely inaccurate and why? Oh, so many things. The ignorance level was so much higher. My ignorance level is a little lower now, a little lower. Agreed. Uh, but my ignorance level is extraordinarily high at 18. I can remember. Uh, and I do remember it was extraordinarily high. So um, it's getting lower every day. I work on it. But uh, I would say the number one thing that I learned from 18 is that um, you should never judge people by their uh, wealth. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, and I interesting. I really thought that that if you were poor, it, you were you know just not smart and not a good person, probably. And you know, I I really thought that. I think I thought that that at eighteen, although I was nice to people, I still think internally I thought that that smart people are wealthier and poor people and and good and they're better people and bad people are not smart and they're poor. Mm -hmm. And I learned that that was all completely wrong. <laughs> in fact, it's opposite in many cases, unfortunately. Some of the best and, people I've met are extremely poor, and some of the worst people I've met are extraordinarily rich. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really learned, you know, a lot. To judge uh -huh. people by their behavior, not by their look, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And how can someone be a difference maker in their community? To be a difference maker in your community, you simply have to look at all people as family. What would you like someone to do? How would you like someone treated if they were extended member of your family? It's very simple. If you lose, if you use that rule, use that one rule, your everything in your life will be a lot better. Anyone else's life will be a lot better. If you had a crazy uncle and they were doing something crazy on a nephew out of control, a mentally ill person in your family, a person on drugs in your family, how would you want them treated? If you just do that, no matter what your situation is, look at people as yourself. When I look at my 
team members, I, aka employees, I think to myself, you know, not just how would I have been a bad employee, oh, which probably would have been the case, but I actually think, would this be a good deal for me if I was the employee? You know, do, do would I want to be treated this way? You know, mm-hmm. would I want this? Is this a good thing for me if I was an employee? And so I would not do to my employees or treat them differently than I want to be treated myself. And if you mm-hmm. just do that one thing, it just makes everything a lot easier. Don't judge people by how they look or what they're wearing or whether they're homed or homeless. <laughs> Silliness. Um, <laughs> but just because <laughs> you never hear by anybody ever talk about homed people. You ever notice that? They'll say a homeless person did something on TV, but they never say what homeless people did. <laughs> Think about it. You'd be, t- you'd be scared to death of homeless people. Right. <laughs> everybody was talking about how many people did crimes and did it at home. You'd be terrified of people at home. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Well, Dale, thanks so much for uh, being on with us again. And uh, your website again is uh, threatmanagementcenter.com. Uh, where can people find you on social media? Yes, you can go to Vipers Threat Management on Facebook or Detroit Threat Management on Facebook. And you can also YouTube Detroit Threat Management Center um, on YouTube videos. Uh, if you go to um, Google, you'll see some interviews. You see a lot of witnesses and testimonials from victims that we help for free. We help domestic violence victims, stalking victims, crime witnesses for free. We keep them alive and safe for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see police testimonials. Police officers say that our training saved their lives. And what I'm really proud of is you got police officers on our website that, that testified on video that the training allowed them to take control of people without injuring them. Mm-hmm. So that I, mean, I really take pride in that. Like some of the officers are saying that the training allowed them to dominate threats. And what I'm most proud of is that I'm glad they were able to win. But at the same time, what I'm most proud of are the police officers that said that this training allowed them to avoid using force and violence in a way or tactics in a way that would have been more aggressive. And they used this training to not injure someone, which they thought was good also um, internally for their, for their uh, uh, injury reports for the prisoners, uh, person they were, they were arresting. And so mm-hmm. that's what I'm really proud of is that people can create peace through our training system. And that's what we're really excited about uh, sharing that information, both mostly to civilians, but also to police. So, you know, the thing to remember is that for every police situation, there's a hundred civilian situations. Uh, we need to really focus on the fact that the true enemy of humanity is violence. Violence is the enemy. The anti-kill philosophy is vital. We must agree, uh, if we want to evolve properly, that killing is not an imperative. You don't have to kill people. There's never a time where you, you actually have to kill them. There are situations in which, you know, fatal force might be the only option you have at that time, but with, with proper preparation, we could actually prevent uh, uh, every kind of killing with proper preparation, okay, mm-hmm. and logistics. So that's the point of it, is that the anti-kill philosophy is the belief that there's always a way to preserve human life and that violence is the enemy of humanity, not the, not the person. So if a person has a knife or a gun, it's important to look at them as a person and remember that that gun or the knife and their intentions, that's what is the enemy, not the person, not the human being. Mm-hmm. Well, Dale, powerful stuff. And thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 
So there you have it. Again, I'm glad to see someone like Dale out there making a difference in the community the way that he is. And with all the violence that we've seen in the streets uh, around the country and even around the world as of late, it's good to see that someone is advocating proactive, peaceful tactics. Instead of trying to erase history by dropping statues, for example, he acknowledges the history of the locals and lets that be a reminder of what he's trying to actively accomplish. And that's really cool to see because, as he said, communities can't come together and build something together when there's anarchy on the streets. So what did you get from the conversation? Tell us on social media with any pointers you got out of the chat, any concepts, any new ideas, and we'd love to chat with you about it. And if you'd like to continue the conversation with Dale, I selected a good few good audios and videos of him. Uh, to start things off, I wanted to share with you two interviews I referred to with him and Andrew Heaton, who I had actually had back on the show in session 165. And much of the conversation is stuff that wasn't even covered in today's uh, conversation at all. Uh, and then the first video is of him giving a short introduction of how he works with law enforcement to educate them in uh, self-protection. Uh, and then next, there's a video of him giving a, a presentation in San Francisco back in 2017 about the Threat Management Center and what they're doing. And again, that's, you know, that's nice to see him taking what he's doing in Detroit to the road. And then the last video is of him doing some in-person training at an event called Anarchapulco. And that's a good one if you actually want to get a good look of, of what his training looks like in person. So check those videos out and the other show notes at newinceptions.com slash 177. So that's it for session 177. Remember, if you want to do meaningful work like Dale, it might help to make sure your purpose lines up with your passion and make a difference. You can do that for free by checking out my resource, Uncover Your Personal Mission at newinceptions.com slash personal mission guide. So with that said, thanks for joining us. Until next session, dig in, have fun, and take care in whatever you're creating. And we'll see you back here next time. Thanks for listening to the Angles of Latitude podcast. Connect with us at home, at work, or on the go at facebook.com slash new inceptions, on Twitter at new inceptions, Instagram at new dot inceptions, and on the web at newinceptions.com.